0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Elementary, my dear. I'm Imer Maguire, and in today's episode, we're talking about gold and other precious metals. Mike Sims explains where gold comes from, while Dr. Ramsey tells us what counts as treasure and the history of gold in Ireland. This is a six-part series where we explore the wonders of some of the most fascinating elements in the periodic table. Elements are everywhere. And each week, we discuss their importance in unusual places, from what's inside a meteorite to the toxic elements used as medicines in times gone by. And today's episode is all about gold and other precious metals. Coming up on today's episode, I talk to elements expert Mike Sims. We chat about where to find gold and how most of it is hidden in a hard-to-reach place.
1: Most of Earth's gold is actually in the core, which is not very useful, is it? <laughs>
0: Can we get that out?
1: No, 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 except in those, those really naff B-movies. Core, wasn't there one? Terrible, terrible <laughs> film.
0: I also chat with curator of archaeology, Dr. Greer Ramsey. Greer tells me all about the history of Irish prehistoric gold and jewellery. He also talks all about treasure, what to do if you stumble across a hidden hoard, what actually counts as treasure, and if finders keepers is the law of the land.
2: First thing we're going to clarify is that the landowner usually has precedence. Okay, so so if
0: I find something in my back garden, I have to tell you about it, but I can keep it?
2: You can keep it as long as it doesn't classify as treasure.
0: Let's start things off with Mike. I'm here with Mike Sims, the curator of the Elements Exhibition. And today, Mike, we are going to have a chat about gold and other precious metals. I think probably a good place to start is gold and where it comes from you know how is it created where do we find it
1: well uh, ultimately it's been a bit of a question for quite a while about where is it created originally (laughs) because where can i get some (laughs) oh well well, in terms of (laughs) created in the universe probably from colliding neutron stars or something like that and then the the where we find it on earth uh gold mines strangely (laughs) enough gold in them our hills gold (laughs) is very very rare so it's got to be concentrated in some way and Uh, and that's true of a lot of minerals that we exploit they've been concentrated because if you just kind of dug a random hole in a random rock they're not going to contain very much at all and the processes that concentrate them are actually pretty much like cooking it's water and heat and water and heat will tend to distill out certain things you don't want and keep the things you do want and so under certain conditions you can actually get you know gold can be quite concentrated so over in the the west of ireland craig patrick the holy mountain there are veins of quartz there, which is a very common mineral. And in those quartz veins, there are this visible gold. And some of those quartz veins, you're talking about 100 grams or more per tonne, which oh. is huge, hugely rich. And so, of course, there were proposals. To go? Well, no, actually, no. No? Because back in the uh, late 80s, there was a, a mining company did some prospecting and they found that there was lots of gold on coke patching. Oh, can uh. we mine? You know, they got a license to prospect and then, oh, we'd like to mine this now. And there was a huge hoo-ha, this is 30 years ago now, um, and there were nuns threatening to throw themselves in front of the bulldozers and such like, and the locals were very much against it. So that that never happened. So just because you found a lot of gold doesn't mean you'll be able to mine it. And that's going on in the spare at the moment. So that's where, you know, gold is found these days or where we tend to go for it but you know it's it's thinly distributed throughout the earth's crust there's an interesting story behind that also is because most of earth's gold is actually in the core which is not very useful is it
0: (laughs) can we get that out
1: no no (laughs) no except in those those really naff b-movies core wasn't there one Terrible, (laughs) terrible film anyway now, the thing is that in the very early history of the, the Earth, Earth formed from the same stuff as the rest of the solar system, so it would have had a certain proportion of gold in it. But that very early Earth, in the first few million years, would have melted completely. And when that happens, you will tend to get different elements separating out. And the iron and nickel goes to the core um, because it's dense. And iron and nickel are the dominant metals, particularly iron. So it heads down towards the core, forms this iron core, and it takes with it. Elements that are called siderophile elements—they like iron and gold and platinum and, and iridium and, and a lot of these precious metals are siderophile elements. So when all the iron and nickel sank to the core, well, the gold went with it. So you end up uh, when the uh, early Earth's crust kind of finally solidifies, you end up with this crust made of really rather cheap elements—silicon and aluminium and oxygen and things like that. Virtually no gold at all. Well, the thing is that you've got uh, meteorites and asteroids, bits of, of almost like proto-planets kind of zooming around the solar system and they still contain a certain level of gold, still quite low, and it's those meteorites that arrived after the Earth's crust has solidified and they effectively salted the Earth with some of these rare precious metals and it's those that have been kind of recycled into into the mineral veins, gold deposits and, and, and things like that. So our gold that we use is not the original stuff that came with the earth. It's some that was delivered a bit later on. New gold? New gold, yes. yes.
0: <laughs> so what about this new gold that we have? Obviously when I think of gold, I think of jewellery.
1: Mm. But
0: gold's widely used in technology. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. It's yeah so
0: huge. W- where do we find it in technology? Everywhere. Everywhere.
1: Everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's just um everywhere. Because the great thing about gold is is it is it doesn't react, it doesn't tarnish. If you've got electrical contacts, you do not want them tarnished. So one of the copper's a great conductor. Silver's an even better electrical conductor, but silver is expensive Mm. and it tarnishes. Um, gold doesn't, and you can beat it incredibly thin, you know, you can beat it to a few atoms thick and it'll still conduct, you see. So that's why it is used everywhere. So really it's the, there's a lot more gold in mobile phones than there is in most gold ore. So, oh,
0: really? Yeah. yeah is, that, that, is that not, I know mobile phones now are obviously very expensive, but is that not incredibly expensive or do, does it cheapen no, it that you can make it so tiny? Yeah, it's,
1: it's such tiny amounts that you're dealing with. You know, you're talking a few pounds at most, things like that. But even things like washing machines, washing machines tend to be quite damp at times. I remember when mm-hmm. our washing machine kind of, it, it got a bit, it went wrong. It, it kind of, we went into the room and it was steam billowing out of it and it <laughs> melted the little train. anyway the guy came and he took it apart and he took this oh this is the bit that's wrong and there were these marvellous kind of circles of gold behind oh. the dials you see and it's incredibly thin but that's it's just example. it's everywhere where you've got any sorts of electrical contacts you well, use gold amazing. because it you can rely on it
0: but it's not big it's interesting that it, you know when I think of gold I think of expensive but it's literally like you said you know a couple of pounds worth there's no point yeah, in you, smashing up your one thousand pound iPhone to get a bit of gold out of it? No,
1: no, no. You need a lot of iPhones to make it worthwhile. A lot of washing machines. So.
0: <laughs> so we've obviously got other precious metals that we want to talk about. Could you tell us a little bit about the iridium anomaly?
1: Well, the iridium anomaly is this thing that uh, iridium is a is a metal, uh, and it's in a little group uh, with with gold and platinum, osmium, uh, and and a few others. So it is is pretty rare. In fact, it's ridiculously rare. It's the rarest stable element on Earth. Mm. There's not much of it around. Um, also, it has some other interesting properties. It's the second densest element. So it's really, you can make great paperweights out of it.
0: Super dense? What's the densest?
1: Oh, densest is osmium. But that's only a whisker denser than iridium. Um, but so osmium could get great paperweights, except they'd be so expensive mm. because the stuff's so rare. Um, so if it's so rare, you think, well, is it actually much use? A few chemists say to me, oh, yes, yes, it's very, very useful. But generally, it's not. Terribly but we useful. can't get it. But the thing about iridium and the iridium anomaly, which quite a few people may have heard about, is that iridium is very, very rare on the Earth's crust. But it's slightly more common in meteorites. And that's, again, because the meteorite's are effectively this undistilled version of the early solar system. So they don't contain huge amounts of iridium, but they contain more than the Earth's crust does, which is you know, next to nothing. And so you would expect, if you went to dug up in the morns and and processed uh, a load of granite, to get, say, five grams of Iridium, you'd have to process 5,000 tons or more of granite. Oh,
0: that's how rare it is. Yeah,
1: so you're talking about two, three parts per billion. Uh Not very much at all. But back in the late 70s, there was a guy called Walter Alvarez and his dad, Louis Alvarez, or might the other way around. Anyway, Alvarez, father and son. Uh, Alvarez, the son, was a geologist, and he was looking at the end of the Cretaceous period, right, and the dinosaurs died. And one of the things he thought, you can measure the rate that rocks are being deposited by how much iridium they've got in them, because iridium is falling out of the skies, tiny, tiny little particles, micrometeorites all the time, this kind of dust of iridium. And so if you've got a layer of mud that's been deposited very, very slowly, it'll have slightly more iridium in it, you see. Mm-hmm. And if it's been deposited very fast, there'll be almost none, because there's not much of this stuff coming down at that time. So he looked at this clay layer at the very end of the Cretaceous period, just when the dinosaurs and lots of other things died out, um, and he suddenly found this huge anomaly. It was we were talking about 100, 150 parts per billion of iridium. And that was really weird. You know, That's what... a huge amount,
0: whenever you said, what, one to two? Yeah, you you're
1: say? talking, yeah, one, two, three parts billion, and suddenly it's got this huge spike. If that was due to the fact it was very, very slow rates of deposition, then you would expect to see other evidence. But you don't see that. It's quite clearly this was not being deposited particularly slowly. And so he went to see his dad, who had to be a Nobel Prize winning physicist, you know, <laughs> as, as <his laughs> you dad you do you do? <laughs> Yes. And, hey, dad, what do, you, what do you think of this? And his dad said, well, it must be a meteorite impact because meteorites contain all this iridium, you know, and that would be a way of, of, if you had a giant meteorite hit the earth and it would sort of explode and it would scatter this dust laced with iridium and lots and lots of other things throughout this layer and it would quickly kind of settle down out of the sky and, and form this spike uh, and so they published this paper, and I was a, a, just started as an undergrad geologist. And I remember this coming out and I was, a ridiculous idea, preposterous <laughs> <laughs> nonsense. Of course, he's right. <laughs> so it just goes to show you know, it t- took somebody, a geologist, talking to uh, his Nobel physicist winning father, <laughs> really kind of settled one of the. Mm. I, I don't believe that the. the meteorite impact was the sole cause of the extinction of the dinosaurs but the iridium anomaly was really a kind of turning point in our understanding of what was going on there so it's useful to geologists iridium, yeah. but it's not terribly useful otherwise
0: but even as you said as a marker and as a turning point and that mm. you know as a scientific discovery it's sure it's, it's almost it's probably worth it just for that even if we can't really get our hands on it much here
1: yeah it changed the whole way of thinking in that uh, Prior to that time, a lot of geology was kind of gradualism; things happen mm. slowly, and this was suddenly we're going back to what's called catastrophism. This was something that happened one Tuesday afternoon, <laughs> um, and that changed things. You know, so a single m- momentary event could do that. So, so yeah, the original has a lot to, lot to answer for.
0: And what about other precious metals then are there other ones that are particularly interesting or have fascinating applications well
1: platinum is the is really the one that everybody's heard of. platinum platinum Mm. is very expensive platinum you're talking at least half as much again as as gold uh because it's again it's very very rare um it's used in jewelry but the problem with platinum as with iridium is it's damned hard gold you can bash into all sorts of shapes you Mm -hmm. can shape it quite easily and in fact to make good jewellery, you have to alloy it with other metals. Otherwise, it's just too soft. 24-karat gold is just too soft. But platinum and iridium are damned hard. So to make good platinum jewellery, is, you know, you need a lot of thumping of the damn thing to get it <laughs> go into shape. Um, but platinum is also a great catalyst. Uh, okay. and the catalysts are these materials which... Uh, they help in a chemical reaction along. They really kind of facilitate it, make it much more efficient, but they don't actually take part in it themselves. So you can use them again and again and again. So catalytic converters uh, in um, petrol engines—that's uh, th- what you're using to actually convert some of the noxious gases coming from the burning of hydrocarbons into things that are less noxious. So the platinum is being used as that. Hence, catalytic converter. Mm. So platinum is the is the one that's. Used a lot, it's got very high melting point as well, so it's used for things where you need a very high melting point. Osmium is again, osmium the densest of all, best paperweights, except that they'd be poisonous by skin absorption. So
0: mm, that's not great for something you've got sitting in your office.
1: No, no, because osmium tetroxide is very, very nasty, so you don't want to mess with that. Um, and are there
0: other ones that are kind of prevalent in technology? You know, like gold. Because I, I wasn't aware that gold was used in mobiles.
1: There's another one. It's not really a, a precious metal, but it's the it's the rarest. Um, although people might contest this, supposedly the rarest uh, stable, i.e. non-radioactive element in the universe, which is called tantalum. And tantalum is ridiculously rare. And that's the thing there, you can make really, 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 really tiny capacitors, capacitors of vital electrical bits that you need in, in all the modern technology. And these, um tantalum capacities you can make ridiculously small uh, and so tantalum is 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 very very important and there's all sorts of issues with sources of tantalum because mm. it's coal tan um yeah we should get in parts of of Africa you know um that's kind of funded by crime and such like but tantalum is vital, but not used in jewelry, I don't think no. <laughs> <laughs> precious but not in the way we think of precious metals.
0: Yeah, not gold rings and, no. and silver earrings and, and that kind of thing. Mm. Mike Sims, thank you very much. My pleasure. You're listening to Elementary, My Dear, with Amer Maguire. Next up, I have a chat with someone who can hopefully give us a few tips on where to look for prehistoric gold and treasure troves. Dr. Greer Ramsey is the Curator of Archaeology at National Museums Northern Ireland. Welcome, Greer.
2: Pleased to be here, pleased to be here.
0: So, when do you get the the first evidence of gold being used in Ireland?
2: Okay, well one of the major uh, watersheds in prehistory is the Bronze Age. The Bronze Age in Ireland begins somewhere around 2500 to 2300 BC. And although we call it the Bronze Age, uh, the first objects are actually made of copper, uh, mainly for making tools and weapons, but they soon discovered that copper is a comparatively soft metal and they added tin. So tin and copper gives you gives you bronze. And bronze was used primarily for making tools and weapons. But even from a, an early period in the Bronze Age, say for around 2300 BC, we get the first gold objects appearing in Ireland. And gold in Ireland is almost exclusively used for making jewellery. And the reason why we're making this point at the outset, um, if you look at the situation, in, in, in Britain, for example, in 1994, there was a big survey of prehistoric Bronze Age gold objects from Britain and Ireland, and Ireland was producing twice as many mm-hmm. gold objects from Britain. And in Britain, you were more likely to, to get some bronze or jewellery made from bronze as opposed to gold. So, both the quality and quantity of Irish prehistoric gold work gave it this kind of nickname that Ireland was the, the El Dorado of Western Europe. The El Dorado was this mythical gold area because of the quality and quantity of Irish prehistoric gold work. Uh, and, for example, a um, place that you didn't want to be in the Bronze Age, if you wanted to wear a bit of gold jewellery, is Scotland. But Scotland produced very, very, very little. Uh, gold objects uh, and an interesting phenomenon about the bronze age in Ireland as the bronze age increases in time um the bronze age ends around 700 BC but towards the end of the late bronze age we're getting substantial amounts of gold objects and some of those are really incredibly heavy and uh, when we get into the iron age the number of gold objects dramatically declines so if you're talking about Ireland's golden age. We, we are talking about the Bronze Age from around 2300 to 700 BC.
0: You'd mentioned there the Bronze Age gold jewellery. So the type of jewellery that you're talking about, what kind of jewellery was made at that time and how was it worn? Okay.
2: Well, I'm going to start off by pointing out to one of the problems in interpreting Bronze Age gold jewellery now I'm just having a look over and I can't (laughs) see you're actually wearing any jewellery at the moment just to watch at
0: the minute just to watch but
2: you know if if we're sitting watching somebody you know walking down the street in the office you might notice that they're wearing earrings Mm -hmm. they're wearing a ring around the neck they're wearing bracelets with a fashion now for 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 body piercing well one of the conundrums or problems with uh, the Bronze Age in Ireland is that gold is gold jewellery is not buried with the dead so it would be very, very nice to find uh, a gold item buried on the dead, in a skeleton, around their neck, around their arm, because mm-hmm. they would be, be pretty sure as to how they were worn. And that doesn't happen. So we're guessing um, how some of the jewelry was worn by essentially how it looks, comparing it to modern day. But there are a number of items that are, are, are more difficult to guess exactly how, how they were worn. Now, in, in terms uh, of the objects, let's start... It's hard, of course, to describe objects. It's much easier if you're seeing them. But I'm going to start with the earliest. One of the earliest objects that begins around 2000 uh, BC is called a gold lunula. So lunula is named after the crescent shape Mm -hmm. of the moon. So we can get an idea of its basic shape. And uh, there's around 100 known and they're nearly all from from Ireland. They have the consistency of tinfoil. So they're crescent-shaped, okay, yeah. but they're very, very, very thin. Yeah, you could literally fold them. Uh, and some people think that they could have been worn around the neck because mm-hmm. they are that size. Uh, some people could think they might even be worn That's in the That's a bit hair. of a
0: crown, maybe? Yeah, maybe it's a bit yeah. of a
2: crown. Well, but we're we're really, really, really not, not sure. So they would be one of the, the, the earliest objects. So if we move on from the gold lunula, of, say, of which there's 100, we'll move on now to one of the rarer objects in the Bronze Age. And they're an object of the late Bronze Age, so maybe around 950 BC. And there's only seven known from Ireland. And they're called a a gold bulla. Mm -hmm. And bulla is from the Roman word for a blister. And so they look to a certain extent maybe like a little bubble or even a strawberry or heart-shaped object. But what's interesting about them is they have a little tube along the top. So we're quite certain that the tube was drawn perhaps with a bit of leather. And it was worn round the neck like a locket.
0: Like a little uh, bit of a pendant? Like a
2: little bit of a pendant, but not a flat pendant. Um, It's kind of a little bubble shaped. Mm-hmm. It's really like almost wearing a strawberry shaped object around your okay. neck. Okay. The interesting thing about it is they're absolutely tiny, uh, two by three centimetres. So if that doesn't mean very much, if I was to put this little gold bullet in my hand and close my hand, you wouldn't see it. They're really, really tiny. And the gold bullet from Inch is remarkable because it, it's decorated. Mm-hmm. And it's highly decorated, and the front and back of the bullets, made from two sheets of gold, are joined together with thirteen strands of gold wire. And what's wow. interesting about that is, you probably couldn't count the gold wire. Well, I certainly couldn't count the gold wire because <laughs> I'm wearing glasses <laughs> with with the naked eye. Uh, and it's also beautifully decorated with concentric circles. And one of the really interesting things is then, you know, their ability to work on a miniature scale mm-hmm. without the aid of magnifying glass and Presumably if you got into your 30s, if you got into that age in the Bronze Age, your eyesight would have gone, you couldn't have done it. So who was making these objects? So no, really, really, really skilled objects.
0: Obviously, you're, you're talking, Greer, all about um, all the lovely gold jewellery that's been found here. Why do you think gold appears to have been more popular for making jewellery instead of something like bronze?
2: Well, if you really think today, from well, from an archaeological point of view, uh, gold is a fantastic uh, metal to discover. And the main reason for that is that it essentially does not decay; it's as good today as it was 2000 BC.
0: That's true. Those things that have been found here, they're just as yeah, I mean, as they don't need beautiful. any conservation
2: treatment. They essentially just need cleaned. We would almost say flippantly, you know, run run under a tap, but <laughs> you know, they they do not need any major conservation treatment and trying to worry about decay of the metal. If you were to find iron objects, for example, mm-hmm. most they're mostly really disappointing because the iron is gone. Um, bronze, somewhere between the two, but it can corrode. And even good silver objects, occasionally silver objects can corrode. And you don't find that with gold. We also like the intrinsic colour of gold. But I had the privilege of watching a metal worker make a number of gold objects uh, and they really explained to me that gold is such a fantastic uh, metal to work with and a lot of the objects that we are talking about in prehistory aren't cast so we're not casting the finished shape by heating up the metal and pouring it into a finished mould most of it is done from a bar of gold that is then hammered even to quite intricate shapes. Uh, And it was explained to me that if you were working with gold or copper or bronze, after you're hamming the metal for a while, it begins to harden Mm -hmm. and will have a tendency to break. And it needs to be heated up. And that process is called annealing. Well, if you're working with gold and you're working with bronze, you have to do it far, far less working with gold. And also the surface of gold is easier to decorate. So it is is a, a metal that was easier to use. And also, of course, it's rare. Uh, it has also this kind of um, you know commodity value mm-hmm. in, in the prehistoric period we don't have any form of currency but gold was one way to to exp- to express wealth and i mean even today you know with you know going for gold mm-hmm. the gold medal uh, do we say david beckham's golden balls even get get <laughs> get a mention but you know people know that, that gold is a is is a, is a precious metal
0: Gold is something that we've obviously valued so much. So it's nice to think that they're, it's kind of multifaceted in terms of the reasons as to why gold was used. So as you're saying, they're easier to decorate, easier to work with, and people back then valued it just as, as we do now. You kind of touched a little bit there on people working with the gold and some of the methods that they used. What about scientific methods? Have they helped with the study of prehistoric gold?
2: It's a very, very in- interesting question. And it's, it's something that I really, really learned a lot about because I took I took one thing for granted, which I'll explain in a minute. Really, since the, the 1970s, there have been uh, a number of major research projects across Europe on prehistoric gold. And indeed, um, we would get gold objects analysed. Of course, when you look at a gold object, you're pretty sure that it is gold. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's nice to have things confirmed, though most times we know objects are gold. And you're looking at me strangely, but you say, I can imagine you're saying, Greer, but your gold is gold. Why would you want to have gold analysed? And there is the mistake that I that I made initially. I thought gold was gold. There is no such thing in Western Europe as pure gold. If you were to dig gold out of a number of um, the po- possible outcrops in Ireland, for example. So we have traces of gold in the Mourns, and mm-hmm. the Spurns, at yeah. Crowpatrick, in Wicklow. We have gold also, uh, you know, gold outcrops in, in Wales, for example. We'll stick with the island. So if you dug a piece of gold out of the ground in Ireland, it will always have an element of silver in it.
0: Now, is this related to the carrots of it, the gold? It is really. Because so, I've always wondered this, you know, why, yeah. why is there such variety in carrots? Because I did think, like you said, gold was gold and that was it.
2: In Ireland, for example, naturally occurring gold as a dug out of the ground, will have a silver content between 5 and 16 percent. So as the percentage of silver increases, the carat decreases. So for okay. example, theoretically, you might have 24 carat gold as pure gold. You don't. Um, we had one of the our gold objects tested at around 87, 88 percent gold, that is 21 carat gold. So the higher the carat, the more pure the metal mm-hmm. if you get down to 14 carat gold and somebody buys you a 14 carat gold ring you're sort of being shortchanged a bit <laughs> because what you'll find is that um, that, is, that will be a modern gold and it probably has a reasonably high percentage of copper in it and, and what's really interesting about that so as you go across Ireland you go b- across different parts of Britain um, the naturally occurring gold has almost a fingerprint signature um, some areas are going to have higher amounts of silver than other. you also get minor trace elements so okay digging out of the ground gold also has less than one percent some copper and some tin and in many ways they they act as almost like kind of a, a fingerprint and that led on to the idea well you know gosh maybe if we were to sample then these gold sources in the morns or Wicklow mountains or Co Patrick and we were to test the gold objects maybe we'd get a match and maybe we could say gosh that bracelet came from Sperren gold, uh, th- though the situation is not that not that easy.
0: I always imagine people kind of stand at a stream and panning for gold. I couldn't really imagine you doing that. So, how has the museum acquired its gold? Where has it come from?
2: There's there's two things. We're we'll, we'll not going to the details and bore you to, necessarily to death about legislation, <laughs> but there is an obligation on members of the public to report what they believe are archaeological finds to the museum. And that can be of any type. It can be stone axes, it can be bronze swords, it can be gold objects.
0: So it's not here, it's not finders keepers? You have to report it?
2: No, you, you, well, you, you have to report it. Okay. Now, a lot of people think that when you report it, the museum has the right to hold on. to it. Well, the first thing we're going to clarify is that the landowner usually has precedence. Okay, so, so
0: if I find something in my back garden, I have to tell you about it, but yes. I can keep
2: it? You can keep it. As long as it doesn't classify as treasure, so this are going to get <laughs> okay. we're going to get a little bit complicated here. But the easiest way is to think of some examples. So, for example, if you had found a stone axe, mm-hmm. Neolithic stone axe, what you would do is you report it to us. We would record it, measure it, photograph, put a spot on the map. Why are we putting a spot on the map? Because unfortunately, when we look at most of our collections, which are antiquarian collections, the majority of the objects have no recorded location. As to where they came from so if we're looking to build up patterns of where people lived mm-hmm. in the past distribution important and an accurate spot in the map is important so that's that's why we're, we're, we're interested in that and all we can do under the historic monuments and archaeological objects order 1995 <laughs> is to to hold onto the objects for recording in most instances so we would maybe return the stone axe but when would we not return objects well we would not return objects if they classify as something known as treasure and the current definition of treasure is: Are the objects over three hundred years old? Okay. Are they made of gold or silver?
0: So does it have to fit those two?
2: Yes. And the definition of extra- treasure was also extended to cover prehistoric metal hoards. So what is a hoard? The minimum definition of a hoard is two or more objects buried in the ground at the same time. So if, let's take a few examples. So if you had found a little gold. Bronze Age locket, mm-hmm. it's over three hundred years of old. It's made gold, therefore it's going to classify as treasure. If you had found a single bronze age sword made of bronze, it wouldn't classify as treasure. It's just normal reporting, handed back unless you wanted to try to acquire it. Acquired. If however you had found two swords mm-hmm. buried together, they classify as a hoard and they would classify as treasure. So I would know all the ins and outs mm-hmm. of that. You know, wouldn't have to necessarily too worry about it. The thing is that it's reported, but. What then happens if the item... Well, what's really, really, really interesting, and it's a nice political story in Northern Ireland context, is where did this law of... Where did the Treasure Act of 1996 stem from? Well, it stemmed from an ancient medieval law called the Law of Treasure Trove. And in many of these cases, if people find nice gold shiny objects, who owns them? They belong to the landowner, or or they belong to the state. And in medieval times, the kings and queens the crown Wanted to make a claim if people found gold objects, you know, and I suppose the you know the analogy today is if you're in the tax office and somebody reports somebody <laughs> driving around a big fancy BMW, but it's not working. Where do they get their money from? And that's what the way they looked at it in the medieval yeah. period, and there were severe punishments if you didn't declare what you'd find. This is where it gets a little bit more complicated. So what starts off as an ancient medieval law to increase the exchequers of the crown gets applied in later years, right up to 1996, for the finds of archeological material for which it's never intended. So we're back in 1896, and we happened to find um, a beautiful gold hoard, as we did, it's called the Breuter hoard in Limavady. Well, gold hoard classifies its treasure. Uh, we, there, there would normally be, uh, There would normally be a court hearing to decide whether it's treasure or not. And what the coroner judge had to decide was: was it buried with the intention of being recovered, or was it buried with no intention of recovering? So, for example, if you take a gold coin hoard that was discovered, most people would probably think, well, that gold coin hoard was probably buried maybe in times of trouble before there was a bank, and the person probably meant to recover it but never did. So the judge might say, oh, well, I think it was buried. I think there was a tension to recover it. I am declaring a treasure comes the property of the crown
0: is it treasure if there's the intention to recover it back again
2: yes however if you take for example there's it was called the sutton Hoo anglo-saxon ship burial uh, where the objects were buried as grave goods most people would agree that if they're buried as grave goods there wasn't they weren't intended to be recovered (laughs) by the person who they were buried with therefore they are not treasure and they become the property of the landowner so objects of national significance could become the property of the landowner. And if, if we can burb with the story, you know, why the, the 1896 find of the Breuterhood is so interesting. Broiderhood is the great Iron Age gold treasure from Ireland. And we have a little boat um, and we have a bowl and we have a number of neck rings. And it was found near Limavady in, in 1896. Uh, the landowner sells it on to a dealer from Cork who sells it to the British Museum. And the British Museum say, oh, we've got this fantastic Iron Age gold hoard. And the Royal Irish Academy, who are in Dublin, say, oh, hold on a minute. (laughs) Why have you got that hoard? There should have been a treasure hearing. And they campaign for a treasure hearing. It's brought up in the House of Commons. Ireland's not partitioned at this stage. And it's heard in the High Court in London in 1903. So here we have in the High Court the British Museum, who have the hoard. and they they're paid
0: ex- good money for it? Who
2: paid £600 mm-hmm. to Robert Dayford. And then we have the Crown. And in many ways, it's ironic, representing the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin. But the Crown <laughs> is saying, well, in the whole of it, we need to decide where this could be. And representing the Crown is Sir Edward Carson of Unionist fame. Mm-hmm. Um, some people mean it, but Edward Carson was, f- firstly, really a, a solicitor known more popularly, of course, as the, the great Unionist politician. And he's representing the Crown. So the British Museum stand up ah, and they want to argue there is no intention, there was no intention to recover the Broider Hoard. If there's no intention to recover it, it's not treasure and it belongs to the landowner. The landowner can sell it to hairy legs. So they stand up in front of the judge and they go, We think this is a, an Iron Age offering to a Celtic sea god called Manon MacLear of Loch Foyle, who incidentally it's claimed had a boat. <laughs> So they go on and they talk about you know objects buried to appease the gods, and that's essentially their their argument. Sir Edward Carson is up and he goes, "What a load of nonsense! I've never heard <laughs> anything more ridiculous in all my life." Celtic sea gods, you know, a sea that may never existed, as we say, bloody, blady blah, blah. Yeah. And the judge has to make his decision, and just as farwell, basically said, Carson, I totally agree with you. I've never heard any. Yeah, this is a fanciful story about mythical Celtic sea gods. You know, it's obviously that this object was buried in a time of trouble. It was meant to be recovered by the original depositor, and he didn't. Therefore, I believe it was buried with the attention recovery. Therefore, I am declaring a treasure. I am taking it off the British Museum. And it is now the property of Edward VII. And Edward Seventh gave the Breuter Hoard to the Royal Ice Academy in Dublin. who gave it to the Nice Museum in Dublin. And that's why it's on display. So, the political irony may not be lost in everybody that we have to thank Sir Edward Carson for the <laughs> fact that this northern treasure is now in the National Museum in Dublin. So, again, to go back, what is treasure now? Gold or silver, over 300 years. And the definition of a treasure was extended to Bronze Age metal hoards. And if you could follow all that, you're a one.
0: <laughs> that was a really fascinating insight into prehistoric gold. So if anyone finds treasure now, you know what to do with it. Greer, thank you very much. Thank you. And a big thank you to today's guests. One of my favourite pastimes when I was younger was digging up the garden in the very vain hope that I'd find some long-lost treasure. All I usually found were worms and kind of the occasional piece of old broken ornaments and the like. I'm glad now I never actually found anything since claiming treasure is such a complex process. I'll just have to hope that someday a neat little meteorite packed full of precious metals lands in my back garden. (laughs) To end today's episode, I thought I'd share a fascinating fact with you all on today's theme of gold and precious metals. We usually see gold being used in jewellery, but did you know it has also been used in medical treatments? For the past 75 years or so, gold injections have been used as a treatment for people with rheumatoid arthritis. Apparently injecting liquid gold into people with the disease was to slow down its progression and reduce inflammation. But more recently this treatment has fallen out of favour due to a bit of an array of side effects like skin discoloration and kidney damage. What do you think? Would you let someone inject you with gold? Coming up in the next episode, we hear all about lead and other nasty elements. We chat about toxicity, including how low-dose lead poisoning was commonplace until recently due to the lead in our petrol. We also discuss if people have a duty to think of potential negative consequences when developing new technologies. Thank you for listening to Elementary, my dear, with me, Emer McGuire. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Also, I would really love if you could take the time to leave us a review. Reviews help other like-minded people discover our podcast. Elementary, my dear, is created by Eimear Maguire and National Museums Northern Ireland. You can also follow me on Facebook at Eimear Maguire, on Twitter at Eimear Official and on Instagram at Eimear Maguire Official. For further information, you can check out National Museums Northern Ireland at nmni.com.